Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist with a festive edition of Tasting Menu. We've picked a selection of the tastiest morsels from our double issue, complete with our Christmas specials. I'm Anne McElvoy, senior editor. And on the menu this week, what happened when slaves and free men were shipwrecked together, agony ants down the ages, and a day in the life of a Beijing park. But first, Star Wars, Disney and myth-making was our cover line as the latest instalment of the Star Wars franchise arrives from a galaxy far, far away to a cinema near you, Disney has certainly captured the public attention this Christmas. Our cover story picked apart the secret of the film's galactic success. The first Star Wars title since Lucasfilm, the owner of the franchise, was acquired by Disney in 2012 for $4.1 billion, it represents more than just the revival of a beloved science fiction series. It is the latest example of the way Disney has prospered over the past decade from a series of shrewd acquisitions. And financially, the force is certainly with them. Having bought Pixar, Marvel and Lucasfilm, Disney has skillfully capitalised on their intellectual property and in doing so, cemented its position as the market leader in the industrialization of mythology. Modern myth-making, like the yarns of old, is an expression of society's wonders and its fears. In uncertain times, when governments and military might seem unable to keep people safe or stay honest, audiences take comfort in the idea of superheroes who ride to the rescue. And technology has helped to spruce up the storytelling, but it's really the same old game. Modern myth-making, reliant though it is on new tools and techniques, is really just pushing the same old buttons in Stone Age brains. What with all this technological know-how, it's unlikely that Star Wars or any of Disney's tales will be lost to the sands of time. Yet it's not always as easy when preserving the stories of the past. An article reporting from West Africa described the bravery of archivists doing just that. The secret evacuations began at night. The manuscript traffickers passed through the checkpoints of their Islamist occupiers on the journey south across the desert from Timbuktu to Bamako. Later, when that road was blocked, they transported their cargo down the Niger River by canoe. And why such dedication? It formed part of a fabulous selection of Islamic literary treasures that had survived floods, heat and invasion over centuries in Timbuktu. Yet it was thought there would be no surviving the destructive powers of Islamic militants as they closed in. Luckily... By the time French troops liberated Timbuktu in January 2013, and journalists saw a wing of the city's grandest new library still smouldering, most of the precious manuscripts had already been spirited away. The man behind the plan to save the antiquities was relieved, but not satisfied. In 2013, he put out a request for help to digitise them. He received an answer from a monastery on the other side of the world. 
You can read more about the pioneering scholars rescuing ancient manuscripts around the world in our special edition this week. It's crucial to reflect upon history, yet sometimes there are things buried in the past people might wish to be forgotten. Another of our Christmas specials recounted the tale of Lutil, a slave-bearing ship which ran aground in the depths of the Indian Ocean. At half past ten on a moonless night, a coral reef stopped the ship in its tracks. By sunrise, Lutil had been lost. As had paradise by the description of the island. It is so small that a swift walker can get round it in an hour, and so barren, bar a few bushes, that it can barely support human life. Winds and waves rolling uninterrupted from Antarctica, 5,000 kilometres to the south, batter it incessantly. And so a new ship was built to swiftly depart, yet the task wasn't exactly smooth sailing. The ship's carpenter had no actual woodworking skills. There were no trees on the island. All wood had to be salvaged from the wreck, much of which was submerged. And the crew was disinclined to work, all but twenty preferring the more leisurely task of bird hunting to manual labour. Luckily, this laissez-faire attitude was countered by the captives. The slaves toiled with great zeal in this work, according to a contemporaneous account. Nothing suggests they were coerced into it. But there's little surprise as to who got tickets to safety, however. On September 27, 1761, two months after the shipwreck, it was the 123-strong white crew who boarded the Providence. That's the new ship. Including around a hundred who had played no part in its construction. Sailing swiftly on then to Cuba, a country famous for warm weather, infamous for relatively cool relations with its outsized American neighbour. But after a historic deal reached this year, those frosty relations have been thawing. As eager tourists have been pouring in, some of the country's brightest stars have been trickling out a Cuban baseball crisis, if you will. A big game is scheduled in the domestic baseball league at Havana's rickety 55,000-seat Latin American Stadium. It pits the hometown Industriales, Cuba's answer to the New York Yankees, against a visiting club from nearby Matanzas. A few years ago, the stands would have been packed, explained our article. But today, the outfield bleachers are empty, and only the rows of seats closest to the action appear even half full. Bored-looking police drag on cigarettes. Has baseball gone out of Cuban fashion? One reason for the apathetic mood is that the government has banned alcohol sales in stadiums to stop fights. A bigger problem is the poor quality of the play. Last year, 11 Industriales players left for the United States. Matanzas lost 10. Only the weaker players remain, and they are demoralized. It's a steep learning curve. South American football fans are accustomed to their country's brightest sporting stars decamping to richer European leagues. But for Cuban baseball fans, the exodus is new. As Cuba grapples with an athletic depletion, a flick through the issue takes us to a story of national evolution. Our correspondent packed his bags and caught the meandering train from Moscow to Archangel in the northwest of Russia. And on the way, he offered some musings on what railways mean to the world's largest nation. Over the centuries, railways have represented the will of an authoritarian ruler, the supremacy of state power, the boom of private capital, the modernization of the country, the terror of Stalinism, 
and the mania for ruinous grand projects of Soviet times. All Russian history is there. And they don't just represent it, they drove it along. Trains propelled the country into the modern age, breaking social boundaries, spreading culture, and making the population more mobile. Not to mention the added allure of political heft. Nikolai Azanenko, the railway's chief under Boris Yeltsin, was considered as a presidential candidate. So why do the tracks run so deeply through Russia's psyche? What makes trains weigh so heavily on Russia's consciousness is the sheer size of the landmass. European railway journeys, with their short distances between stations and the constant sight of human life outside the window, leave little time or space for thought or soul-searching. In Russia, however, train journeys are measured in days and nights rather than just hours. As a result, trains rumble through Russian literature and poetry with remarkable frequency. And we'll rumble on over the border to China, where our penultimate piece described a day in the life of a Beijing park. Aficionados know Ritan, or Sun Altar Park, as one of Beijing's oldest. The altar was built in 1530, in the Ming Dynasty, for the emperor to make sacrifices to the sun. And it was kept that way. For most of the 500 years since the altar at Ritan was built, it was closed to all except the emperor. Ritan became a public park only in 1956, part of a socialist vision of opening up formerly prescribed land to the masses. And the masses are making the most of it. By 7.30 a.m., the north end of the park is covered with poems. A dozen people watch as a man dips a giant calligraphy brush into a bucket of water before writing in the dust. A 61-year-old accountant, he comes here every morning before work. A quick stroll around the cypress trees and another sight reveals itself. At this time of day, most exercise is individual or confined to a dozen people at most. But for 10 minutes from 8am, the park's northeast corner rings with the voice of 82-year-old Guo Baomu, a charismatic former chauffeur with a baseball cap and microphone, who counts as around 70 people pat their thighs 30 times, then their knees, shoulders, backs and heads, and nose and ears and mouth and toes. Like much park activity, Mr Guo's is based on the principles of traditional Chinese medicine, which is enjoying a resurgence. Chinese medicine sees disease as a product of troubled interaction between different parts of the body. If troubled human interactions are bothering you, then you might well call on an agony aunt. And our final pick this week examined the role of these emotional crutches through the ages and how the problem pages reflect the evolution of societies. The first regular problem page, open to questions from readers, was published in 1691 in the Athenian Gazette, a British periodical. Its creator, John Dunton, was feeling guilty for cheating on his wife. He thought that people like himself might appreciate confiding anonymously in a stranger and that readers would be titillated by the exchange. And it seems he was right. He was bombarded with queries on everything from marriage to the ethics of slave trading to why sermons seem longer than they are. Hmm, some things never change. These days, though, the Internet has allowed agony aunts to specialise. There are advice columns for gay men, for train spotters, 
and for Jews who live in Philadelphia. There are ants for every worldview, from libertine to Puritan, and from reactionary to radical. In November, The Nation, a left-wing American magazine, launched an advice column. The first reader's question was, is my depression individual or political? The reply, dear depressed, let's not draw too sharp a distinction. Life under capitalism can be a profound bummer. It's being so cheerful as keeps them going. Yet from the outset, one of the joys of reading problem pages is to see people who deserve a ticking off receiving an amusingly brutal one. In 1765, a young man wrote to the court miscellany, a British periodical, to ask whether he should fight a duel against a rogue who had insulted his beloved. The reply urged him to accept the challenge. For if you run your antagonist through the body, or he you, tis three to one, but the other comes to be hanged, and then there's good riddance of two ridiculous hot-headed coxcombs. Couldn't have put it better myself. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our Christmas tasting menu. If you're hungry for a little more, you can find all of our stories on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.